0: Would you turn me down just a tad? Thank you. I'm told I'm loud enough without it. We have been traveling through the gospel according to Luke, if you've been here these past weeks during the summer. And last week's, I think that's loud enough. Is that loud enough? Last week's scripture reading was particularly useful about our understanding of Jesus' intention. I'm sorry. George. George, if you'd turn down the master. Turn the master down and turn mine up. Just a a little. Just turn the master down, please. Sorry. You know, sometimes we get car radios on our wireless microphones Uh, sometimes it's not good to hear okay uh, George sorry George Go to Jerusalem, and there is no turning back. And we know because we know the story that for Jesus, Jerusalem was that place finally of suffering and death as he was crucified. And we know in last week's story that several people stood beside him and said, We will follow you, Jesus, and yet each one had their own excuses. Undeterred, Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem ultimately alone. That act of incredible servanthood is what gives us the assurance that we are loved by God. Today's passage follows right on the end of that story and opens up beginning in the first verse of the 10th chapter. May God open up to us then an understanding of this word. After this Jesus' announcement to Jerusalem, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way and see. I am sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals even, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking, whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. that the kingdom of God has come near. So the 70 returned after their mission, and they returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So ends the reading of this word. So the doorbell rings, and it's about 6:15 in the evening, and you're trying to prepare dinner, and you're annoyed that you have been distracted and pulled away from your chore. And so you walk to the door and you try to ground yourself because you don't want to appear inhospitable. And as you get near the door, you look out the plain glass side of the door, and you notice that there are two gentlemen, nicely, nice-looking gentlemen, young men, standing there in dark pants and white shirts. And then you notice two bicycles that are parked right behind them on the sidewalk, standing perfectly straight, and you know with resignation, that you are about to open the door on two young Mormons who are on their two-year mission to spread the good news of what they believe. And so you say, okay, I can handle this. After all, I'm a Presbyterian. And you figure that will get you out of a long conversation. And so you open the door and you say to them, I know who you are. Glad you're here. just want to tell you I'm a Christian and a Presbyterian. And all that really does is energize them for even deeper conversation. They want to talk about the Bible and the Book of Mormon, the consummation of all things, and especially predestination, that unfortunate moniker that we Presbyterians have been tagged with over the ages. Next thing you know, you're in a 30-minute theological conversation. They making their point, you making your point. It's two against one, but you can hold your own because You're a Presbyterian, and Presbyterians know about conflict and debate. You do well. It ends up a draw. You wish each other peace and blessings. They turn to go their way. You turn to go back into the kitchen. You exclaim, thank goodness, we Presbyterians don't have to do that as part of our church membership to go and knock on doors for two years in our mission agreement. I mean, can you imagine, you think, how many members we would have in our church if we required that? Friends, paradoxically, if this morning's passage from Luke is full of wisdom and truth, and I think it is, I suspect that we would have way more members in our church If we practice this kind of missional ministry, lots more. Not necessarily the way that Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses do it by knocking on doors in hopes of converting people, but missional even still, which means each of us with our own gifts coming to understand that we have been sent into this world And called as Christians to be on a mission. And that mission is sent to go out into the world and to proclaim and to be the incredible, powerful, loving presence of Christ. This is our mission. That wherever we are in work, in the family, at recreation, as volunteers, we are on mission to give witness to Christ in the way we live The things we do and how we do it. My favorite, favorite quote for how we come to understand this is from St. Francis who said, In everything we do, proclaim the love of Christ. This is the best part. If necessary, use words. You see, Jesus knew that in order to build a church, he needed not only his disciples. For a disciple was someone who would sit at your feet and would and would be taught and would learn and would gather. He needed not only disciples; he also needed apostles. And when an apostle is literally, is someone who has been sent out, someone who has been sent to go. And Jesus knew that going out, sending out was the heart of who God was. God, who was so full of love, his life, his divine energy, his God's power, God's strength, God's persona, wound up, as we have come to know, or think at least, so many billions of years ago into that humongous giant kaboom known as the Big Bang and scattered himself throughout all the cosmos so full of his heart in love that he could only just project it out. Jesus knew that he too had been sent out into the world as the incarnate living human witness to this love. Jesus understood the 121st Psalm That incredible psalm, we lift up our eyes into the hills from whence cometh our help, that is read so often at funerals, but ends, ironically, in an opposite way than I would think. It ends, the Lord will keep your going out, and your coming in from this time forth, and forevermore. The opposite of what you would think, wouldn't you think it would be, the Lord will keep your coming in, and your going out? But it's, it's flipped it. Jesus knew the story of Abraham and Sarah, who began our ancestry of faith, sent out from their father's house to a land they did not know. Friends, this is the pattern of life and of faith. Just as it is the pattern of what we are about when we are born rudely projected out from that sanctuary of our mother's womb into a dark, chilly, sometimes harsh, sometimes loving, nurturing world where we are called to grow up and to stand up for what we believe, living it out in service, giving of ourselves for others, and learning to let others give themselves to us. You see, faith is always a verb, not a noun. And it calls us to follow the one who goes out into the world to serve God. This is what it means to be a missional church. If you think this does not exactly sound like the kind of church that you may have grown up in, if you did in fact grow up in one, for most of us, it isn't. For most of us grew up in what was known as a program-centered church. That church was the build-it-and-they-will-come theory. We put together great programming with good staff and teachers. We build buildings. The people from out in the world will hear and see that and come into the church to be a part of it. Well, that theory or ideal no longer seems to work as well as it did until about 20 years ago. Now people can receive... In many ways, what they received in the programming church on the internet with classes and they can download whatever sermon or preacher they would like to hear. Now, there are many more distractions on Sunday than there were uh, so many years ago. There's soccer and baseball practice. Now, our lives are more frenetic because of technology. Now, less of us are going into the church, but those who don't are still church you see. Going to church has become for many people either a chore or a luxury and many of the programs the church offers sometimes to them no longer seems relevant. This is why so many mainline preachers are fretfully shaking their hands, worried about our numbers. Well, I propose this. Instead of us trying to figure out how to get more people into the church, I propose just the opposite. Let us figure out how to equip and enable the people we have to get out of the church in the world and be the presence of Christ. I suspect then our numbers will not be an issue. Back to the passage. Jesus calls 70 disciples Why 70? It was thought that there were 70 nations in the world, and so he calls 70 disciples. I think it's probably 70 pairs of disciples because he sent them out two by two. But who am I to argue with the text? He calls 70 disciples and sends them out to all the nations that Jesus plans on uh, visiting before he makes it to Jerusalem. Knowing, of course, as Luke does, that he wants us to understand that the word proclaimed is available to everyone, no matter who or where. He sends them out and tells them that the harvest is plentiful, all we need are good hands to labor it. And then he says something completely strange, I think. He says, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. It's a strange thing to say, especially considering what follows. I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. There they were in the midst of a very sometimes uh, dangerous world. They were persecuted by Jews in Luke's day as well as by the Romans uh, as well as by heretics. There were big bad threats out there and they were called as lambs to go out into the midst of it. And you would have thought, that being the case, that he would have said to them, be on guard, arm yourselves, and stand your ground. But no, he tells them, go out like lambs, unprotected, except for the company the two of you have with each other. Don't even take a wallet, an identification card, don't take any food, and don't even wear shoes. And when you enter a house... Or a town, pass to them the peace, and if that piece is returned, then stay in that house, and in an act of good hospitality, receive from them whatever they offer, for that will be your pay. And even if you're a vegeta- vegetarian, and they plop down a 16-ounce New York strip on your plate, you eat it, because that's what it means to be hospitable. Don't try any other places once you've lighted on a place. Don't go search for a better deal. Stay there and heal those around you. Continue to proclaim that the presence of God has drawn near. And if you enter a town that does not welcome you that way or show hospitality, which is one of the incredibly powerful mandates throughout the Bible, then don't rain fire down on them and curse them, just simply go out as an act of protest and shake the dust off your feet because you don't even want to take that from them and go on your way. But before you do, Jesus says, proclaim to them, even though they don't recognize it, that the presence of God has drawn near here too. I can't think but, or stop but think about them heading off shoeless with nothing in their pocket, not a penny, wondering what in the world that they will find out there. And what we learn is that they found out there the presence of God. That they were cared for as much as they cared for others. That the love and grace of God broke through all, all the acts of welcome and hospitality and healing that they found along the way. And then they came back so full of joy and excitement and strength that all they could do was rejoice at themselves until Jesus reminded them that, hey, guess what, sports fans? This is not about you at all. It's instead about the power of God and the Holy Spirit to be present wherever two or more are gathered in my name. I've been thinking that maybe we should... um, include this as part of our confirmation class that we require like the Mormons our 8th grade confirmation class to go out on a mission the whole year they're here and to do it the way that the Mormons did you know I'm just kidding hopefully I see some of you like ooh but they're not of age so okay then let's just require that of every member Each of us will have, all right, I'll negotiate it, one year where our job is to go out and be that kind of missional presence that the Mormons. No, don't worry. Don't worry. You know, if we did, in fact, we would find that there really aren't so many wolves out there as there were in the disciples' day, maybe a few coyotes, some bobcats, but there are also those who are completely indifferent to it. We might find that we are all over the map in terms of the hospitality we would receive. Several weeks ago, I was honored to participate in Cindy Barfield's investiture, which is for a judge like the ordination for a minister. That's when she was sworn in in the federal courtroom, the federal courthouse downtown, where she receives her vestments, her robes. I got there early, as was directed, and walked in the front door and announced who I was, and I was warmly received by the security guards there. Oh, yeah, she's up on the 13th floor. Just go through the radar detector and make your way up. Put your keys in the box first, which I did. Made my way through, and I was standing there, and as the guard on the other side looked in the box he picked up on my keys and he said uh oh what you've got one of those little Swiss army knives on your keychain. I'm not supposed to let you in with this I sat there looking at him he looked around at the other guards and they were like and then he says okay you're Judge Jackson's minister if I can't trust a minister who can I trust at which point I almost stopped to have a conversation with him about whether that was a rational thought or not. But I thanked him and headed on up to the 13th floor, and when I got off the elevator, again I announced myself and was received warmly by uh, Cindy's personal assistant. What can I do for you? You're sitting on the front row right next to Inez. She'll be singing the national anthem. Oh, cool, I'm in big company. Uh, I said, but I I brought my own robe I like to wear at these events. Uh, Is there a place I can change? Sure, you can change with all the judges. So she takes me through the courtroom over to the side door where the um, uh, larger gathering of judges were meeting in the conference room, all in various stages of being robed or unrobed, as the case may be, standing and sitting, talking with each other. And as I walk through the door carrying my bag, my garment bag with my robe in it. I decided I wasn't going to interrupt their conversation so I went over to the corner of the room and I took my coat off, put it down, opened up my garment bag, pulled out my robes, at which point several of the judges' eyebrows went up looking at me wondering who I was. I put on my robe that had three velvet stripes on it and a velvet front panel they became even more curious. Mine was better than theirs. <laughs> A woman judge standing beside me looked at me with great interest, furrowed brow. I could tell she felt threatened. Finally, she blurted out, who are you? And if i had had my wits about me, I would have played along by saying I am the supreme chief grand ultimate puba judge of all the world. Or at least that's who I'm called to proclaim. But instead I meekly said, I'm the minister. At which point she said, Oh, and turned away. We don't always receive perfect hospitality in every case, yet that's the world We are called to go out in. Now, Jesus tells us to do it as lambs. We don't carry traps out there and lay them on the desks of those we want to convert. We don't carry a need to go out there at all. In fact, to convert—that sounds way too woofy-like to me. We're called to be meek and lamb-like. That is to say. To give and to receive, dependent on each other. The same way Jesus did the Lamb of God. Friends, this is our charge. And if we can't physically do it, then we can do it by telephone. And if we can't pick up a telephone for some reason, we can do it with our prayers. However it is we do it, we're called not to be... Set in the cozy, warm, cuddly little sanctuaries of our life but to be invested in and serving the world out there as Jesus did. Since it is clear to me at least that this is the kind of church that Jesus wants, I want to go on record to formally announce that Riverside has a plan to do just that. Two weeks in September, we will gather a 100 of you and call on the, hopefully as many as we can, 706 families in membership at Riverside. It's called Sharing the Bread of Christ. You will be asked to go, simply to go, to take a loaf of bread and to connect to other people without any agenda, without any sense of wanting to convert or change, but simply to go and be hospitable and receive their hospitality. And in that going and receiving, voila, the Holy Spirit presence of Christ will be made real to the going ones and the receiving ones. And we will be church. If you've been asked to do that, thank you. If you're one who will be receiving, be hospitable. And if you're wondering why in the world we are doing this, what is the point of this? All I know to say to you is go back and read this passage from Luke. The apostles went out as they were told, and when they came back, they were full of joy and thanksgiving, going out, coming in, for such is the way of the kingdom of God. Let us now bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labor.